Thank you so much, and good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Katie Campbell, and this is my story. Before I was diagnosed with cancer, my husband and I had a habit of pointing out how lucky we were. As we approached our 30th birthdays, we had been together and in love for nearly a decade. His career in counseling and mine in international development were on the rise and allowed us to afford our own home in downtown Washington, D.C. We had fallen in love with an incredible community of friends who loved us with their whole hearts, and we had an ever-expanding family who supported us completely. We had big dreams to travel the world, move someplace beautiful, and start a family of our own. And we had no reason to think that they wouldn't come true. Then, just a few months after my 30th birthday, I found it, a golf ball-sized lump in my right breast. I saw a doctor a few days later who sent me to a breast center, and at 30 years old, in the same month that my husband and I had planned to start trying for a family, I found myself in a hospital gown waiting with women twice my age to get my first mammogram. The rest of the day was a whirlwind. By that afternoon, I had gotten a mammogram, an ultrasound, and a biopsy. I had been assigned a nurse navigator, and I had an appointment with a breast surgeon. Five days later, I was diagnosed with stage 2 triple negative breast cancer. Over the next few weeks, I had more tests and scans than I even knew existed. I went through fertility treatments to have my embryos frozen. I stood up in my best friend's wedding, and I started chemo. As I got used to the ups and downs of chemo, I gave the days of the week new names, like Feel Crappy Sundays and Feel Good Wednesdays. On Feel Good Days, I would exercise and see my friends, go to work, and try to pretend like my life was normal. When my hair began to fall out, I was totally prepared with an assortment of colorful head wraps and dangly earrings. I blogged through all of it, writing pieces like an ode to my hair, in which I apologized for every bad hair day I'd ever complained about, or future baby mama drama, in which I described the harrowing trials of fertility treatments. Slowly but surely, the feel-crappy days began to feel worse and started rolling over into the feel-good days. I got super tired of the seemingly endless assault on my body. Within just a few months, I had been to the ER for what appeared to be, but fortunately was not, a heart attack. I'd gotten a full body rash so horrifically itchy that I ha the only relief was to sleep totally covered in ice packs. And I had swung violently into menopause, making me want to apologize for every crazy look I'd ever given a sweaty middle-aged woman. <laughs> In the fourth month, I started on an extremely toxic chemo that made me sicker than I'd ever been before. For several days after each treatment, I was too weak to walk. My mouth and throat stung with sores that were inches long. My eyes burned, my stomach ached incessantly, my head throbbed, and I basically felt like I was dying all but a handful of days for eight straight weeks. It was around this time that I say that my brain broke. I no longer recognized myself in the mirror. I no longer recognized my life. I had little to look forward to besides surgery, radiation, and then the fear of recurrence. Chemo was the worst thing that had ever happened to me, and no one in my life could relate. I got looks and texts and cards overflowing with pity. I had gone from capable, compassionate go-getter with my whole life ahead of me to a weak and angry, miserable soul 
with a future already scarred with fear. I started to experience symptoms of PTSD, which researchers finally recognize as a very real side effect of cancer and cancer treatments. My brain, my life, and my future all felt broken. Fortunately, I survived those five months and 16 rounds of chemo. And to celebrate, my friends and I threw a dance party, and I wore the first and only wig I ever owned, which was a short bob in neon pink. A few weeks later, I had a double mastectomy. It was during this surgery that they discovered that the chemo that I'd had had little impact on the tumor, and the cancer had already spread to nearby lymph nodes. A few weeks later, I went in for a routine follow-up with my medical oncologist and discovered that because the first five months of chemo had been ineffective, that they wanted me to have three more months before beginning radiation. I collapsed in her office, sobbing at the prospect. I was told I could think it over, and when I went home that day, I felt as close to suicidal as I have ever been in my entire life. It was ironic because I wanted nothing more than to survive, but I just didn't want to survive this way. In that moment, I just wanted out of my life. I held on to a bottle of narcotics for comfort for nearly an hour before my husband made me call a prevention hotline, and I made the gut-wrenching decision to get more chemo. Three long months later, I celebrated yet again, but this time I sat on a beach in the Caribbean for a week before I returned to start five grueling weeks of radiation. I spent the morning of my last radiation treatment feeling triumphant. But over the course of the day, my exuberance quietly turned into a foreboding fear. For a year, I had been in treatments to fight my cancer, and now I was just totally alone. I also didn't really know who I was anymore outside of cancer. The Katie I had once been was obviously forever gone, replaced by somebody who was tough as nails, but also bitter and confused and afraid. I told my husband that the only future I could imagine was one in which cancer eventually took my life. It had already taken so much for me, it just seemed like the only logical conclusion. Fortunately, I had planned a fall filled with life-affirming activities. Up first was a trip I had planned with an organization called First Ascents. First Ascents provides week-long adventure trips, kayaking, surfing, or rock climbing for young adults who have had or have cancer. Just two weeks after I finished treatment, I was scheduled to go rock climbing in Moab, Utah. I arrived in Utah a ball of nervous energy, but that quickly dissipated as I sat down to my first evening with my fellow fighters and survivors. We turned to stories of surgeries and chemo brain and weird pooping episodes for small talk the way most people turn to the weather. We were all desperate for understanding, for people our own age with their own chemo, radiation, surgery, doctor's pain, near-death, hair loss, menopause experiences. I knew immediately that I had found my tribe. Out on, the first, out, on, out on the rock the first day, I was again nervous. For a year, I had been the weakest person in the room, and I really didn't want to be that person anymore. I was pleasantly surprised after my first few climbs that I seemed to have some semblance of strength. Strength. I was, it was on the second day, though, that I met the, my greatest foe of the week. I had jumped at the chance to take on what seemed like a pretty difficult climb, but about 10 feet short of the top, I could feel my strength fading fast. It had been an excruciating climb, and my muscles were completely spent. 
I had been clawing, grasping, and dragging myself up, fighting for every inch. Every time I thought I might have to throw in the towel, I heard a chorus of support screaming at me from above and below, unwilling to let me stop fighting. I took a moment and thought about all the pain that I'd endured against my will over the last year. If I could survive that pain, I could definitely survive this pain, I thought to myself, and I finally pushed myself far enough to reach the last hold and hoisted myself up to the top. It was in that moment that I feel like I found myself again. I arrived in Utah as a victim of cancer, but I was leaving a fighter, a life embracer, and someone who was, yes, tough as nails, but also optimistic about the adventures that life had in store. My life suddenly felt big and rich and full of possibility. I spent the rest of that fall on one adventure after another. I spent a weekend wandering the streets of Rome, eating or cheating on my diet, eating pizza and drinking cappuccinos. I dove with seals and great, great white sharks in South Africa. I snorkeled with sea turtles in Mexico. I envisioned that fall as my cancer victory lap. But little did I know that cancer had much more in store for me. In January of 2015, just a few months after treatment ended, I found yet another lump, this time near my collarbone. Within a few weeks, it was confirmed that the cancer was back and had spread to a more distant lymph node. My doctor told me it was now stage four. She also told me that it was chemo-resistant and radiation-resistant, inoperable, and unless it grew bigger or spread to my organs, that I didn't qualify for any clinical trials. There was literally nothing they could do for me. I had a one-centimeter tumor in my lymph node, and I was being told that it would end my life. Unwilling to let that be the final answer, I started a whirlwind tour and saw 16 different oncologists and nine of the nation's best hospitals over the next two months. They all delivered the same bad news. There was nothing they could do. Just give it a few months. It'll spread quickly. Try to enjoy the time you've got, one doctor told me. I was sad and scared and desperate. My husband and I spent long nights holding on to one another, grieving the children that we would never have, the vacations we would never take, and the anniversaries that we would never celebrate. But even in the midst of such great despair, I knew I was not ready to throw in the towel. So I kept searching, and eventually a good friend of mine put me in touch with her doctor, an independent oncologist in New York City. He had a completely different approach to cancer, and unlike all of the other doctors, believed I actually had a fighting chance. He put me on a protocol that included multiple treatments, many of them cutting-edge, off-label immunotherapies with few side effects. Of course, being outside the system now meant that we had to pay out-of-pocket for everything. But, we were t- but when we turned to our community of, su- of supporters for help, they stepped up like never before. After months of taking dozens of pills every day, getting injections every month, and completely transforming my diet, the scans began to confirm what my doctor believed was possible, and the tumor started melting away. For nine months, my cancer was slowly but surely shrinking, until last November when scans showed it had popped up in additional lymph nodes. This time, I was afraid, but I was not despairing. I had hoped to one day be rid of my cancer, but with the progression, it finally occurred to me that my cancer may never be gone. I may never stop paying for these insanely expensive treatments, and I may never get to be the mom I had always dreamed of being, and I may not make it to 60 or 50 or even 40 years old. These prospects are both terrifying and heartbreaking, but they are my reality. So I did the only thing I could, 
and I dug in deep to the difficult places and battled it out with feelings of fear and grief and my own self-worth. Slowly but surely, I began to find a place of acceptance. If I couldn't have a life without cancer now or possibly ever, then I would live this life now with cancer and with all of the love, acceptance, and peace that I could muster. Since my scans last November, the cancer has continued to spread, and I have continued to seek out new treatment options. Slowly but surely, I am getting sicker, and this cancer continues to win small victories of its own over and over. But at the same time, my life has not stopped being full and rich and deeply meaningful. My relationship with my husband has never been better. We take no moments for granted and say I love you as often as possible. My life's work has become crystal clear to me. I want to be an advocate and a source of encouragement to the tens of thousands of young adults diagnosed with cancer every year in this country. To that end, I wrote a book this spring called The Courage Club. It includes all of the hard-won lessons I've learned about how to survive crisis with courage and live like you mean it. And if I may take a moment to shamelessly self-promote, <laughs> the book will be published on July 7th. It'll be available on Amazon, and I'm actually running a Kickstarter right now to, to fund the publishing of it. Um, and the Kickstarter was um, fully funded at $20,000 in the first 24 hours. Um, <laughs> But my goal now is to try to get a thousand backers because my goal really is to try to create a movement around living our lives. So there's a flyer in the back if you want to <laughs> grab more information. Um, there is a famous Buddhist monk who, when asked about death and impermanence, once said that it is important to know that the glass is already broken. He held up an unbroken glass and talked about what a wonderful glass it was. But he said, when someday the glass inevitably breaks, his response would be, of course. When we see the glass is already broken, we understand how precious the glass is. So my glass is neither half full nor half empty. My glass is beautiful, and it is already broken. And that makes it the most precious thing in the world. Thank you.